Daniel chapter 1 this evening. Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight without a Bible, just flag one of these guys coming up the aisle. And uh, they'll put a Bible in your hand so you can hear the Word, but read it with your own eyes. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from us to you uh, this evening. We remember as we began, began the book of Daniel last uh, week and made our way as far as uh, verse 5, that the, the sing oh yeah, have fun with that. I'm open to it, I deserve every bit of it. But, but we remember that the, the overarching theme of the book of Daniel is the sovereignty of God, the providence of God. And I always define it is that God rules over all and he overrules all for his purposes. It doesn't mean that everything that happens in the world uh, that he instigates or that that's something that he is causing, but he overrules everything to work the world and is working it toward his God-appointed uh, end. And I think that the book of Daniel provides us with, while this world is, is making its way to God's appointed end, the book of Daniel provides us with tremendous instruction on how to uh, navigate a very fallen world, a very idolatrous world, a very spiritually dark world, and uh, the example of Daniel shows us how to do that. So we have the whole theme as we're going to go through the book of Daniel. He shows us human history all the way to the end, but in Daniel, how to live in the meantime. And we need both of those things. Uh, at work uh, within our lives. And remember, Daniel has now been taken as a captive into Babylon. Babylon was idolatry central. Uh, it was uh, demon central in terms of what they believed and what they practiced. It was a very uh, violent, very uh, ruthless uh, culture, very dark and demonic culture. And yet God calls Daniel into that environment and then doesn't call Daniel into Babylon to where you would think he might say, okay, this is such a mess here that what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you, um, uh, you know, do some, you know, anonymous job. I, don't, I could say a number of jobs, but it would offend somebody here. Uh, tonight, but some very obscure kind of occupation that you just kind of lay low, you don't talk to anybody, you just do your job and you go home and you eat, have enough to eat for the rest of your life and get out of there. But God doesn't do that with Daniel. He takes Daniel and he brings him up into the highest positions of the, the Babylonian uh, government. And Daniel is able to thrive in that environment, in the midst, and the temptations that come in, in, in those kind of uh, positions and that kind of level are extraordinary. And yet he navigates all of it. And before we ever get into all of the visions that are going to be given to others and Daniel interprets them and then visions that are actually given to uh, Daniel, God wants to make sure that we know something about Daniel, something about what made him tick and to learn from him what is necessary to be able to stand in the extraordinary uh, weakness, wickedness and darkness and uh, all of the temptations and the snares that are a part uh, of our age uh, as well. And so we looked uh, last time, we noted the, the three-year education or indoctrination that Nebuchadnezzar enrolled Daniel and his friends in, and uh, they successfully navigated this three-year indoctrination uh, by the grace of God, by uh, uh, learning the broad diversity of, of uh, subjects and learning that were, were put before them, much of it uh, error, uh, much of it uh, completely unbiblical, much of it uh, in terms of the spiritual realm and religious realm, absolute nonsense. But they learned what was required for them to graduate from that environment and, uh, and to be able to listen to all of these things and never allow those things to penetrate their heart, uh, to ever be convinced by those things, that they were in any way superior to what they already knew in their, their Jewish background and their biblical uh, background. So they, ne they learned all of it to kind of pass the test, but it, it never came in and affected their thinking. 
and never affected uh, their heart at all. And so uh, this wonderful biographical introduction to the book. And Daniel doesn't stand in, in the darkness of Babylon for uh, five years or two years or ten years. He does so for uh, almost 70 years. So there's a lot to learn from him. Notice in verse 6, now, uh, from among those of the sons of Judah that were taken captive and given this indoctrination uh, were Daniel, uh, Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and uh, Azariah. And to them, the chief of the eunuchs, uh, he renamed them. He gave Daniel the name uh, Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, uh, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. And uh, so he renames them Daniel's name uh, in Hebrew. Uh, it, it means God is my judge. And Nebuchadnezzar, his uh, representative, has Daniel renamed Belteshazzar, which means Bel, which was one of the gods of, uh, of Babylon. Bel, protect my life. Hananiah, his name means Jehovah is gracious, and he gets renamed Shadrach, which means I am uh, fearful of God, lowercase g. And, and then Misiel, his name means who is what God is. That's that a great name. Man, I mean, maybe you won't give, you may not give your son, your forthcoming son, that is a first name. Uh, but if you're going to give him two middle names, that might be one of them. I mean, that is a great name. And, uh, and then uh, Azariah. Uh, Mishael was given the name Meshach, which means I am uh, despised before my God, lowercase g. And then Azariah, his name means the Lord is help. He was given the name Abednego, which means the servant of Nebo, uh, the, the, uh, one of the gods of, uh, of Babylon. And the th interesting thing is, is we read something like this, we realize that, that it is, is apostate, as Jerusalem and Jude, uh, Judah had become under the, the, the failure of the, her kings and her princes and her prophets and her priests, when she fell into complete apostasy for so many years uh, before being conquered three times by the Babylonians after warning, after warning, after warning that there was a godly remnant in uh, Jerusalem. And uh, that godly remnant is indicated in uh, certainly the parents of these, uh, who, these four who, uh, by virtue of the names that they gave their sons, uh, were indicating and communicating their hope for their children. When we name our children in this culture, it's just like, okay, um, who's the greatest whatever? you know, in the culture, and everybody names their child after that, or it kind of sounds good, we think that's cool, or whatever it is. In, in the Hebrew culture, they would give a child a name, and the name represented the hopes of the parents that the child would grow into that. And all, all four sets of these parents uh, gave their children uh, deeply meaningful and significant spiritual names having to do with the Lord. Two of the names, Daniel and Mishael, contain the word El, which is one of the references to God in the Bible, a contraction of Elohim. Uh, the others, Hananiah and Azariah, they contain the word uh, uh, which is a contraction for Yah, uh, which is one of the names of, of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. And uh, so uh, this, these were the hopes, these were the aspirations of parents for, uh, for their children. And so every time that they would be referred to by their given name, if they were to continue to be referred to as Daniel, Hananiah, Meshach, and, uh, uh, Mishael, and uh, uh, Azariah, every time they would hear those names in Babylon, if that were the case, it would be a reminder of the Lord. It would be a reminder of their parents. It would be a reminder of the hopes of their parents uh, for, their, uh, for their lives. In other words, every time Daniel would hear his name, he would hear the word, uh, God is my judge. And uh, certainly that couldn't do uh, anyone any harm in being reminded of that. 
And, and the chief of the, the, uh, the eunuchs, he knew that you can't really brainwash people and you can't really indoctrinate uh, people successfully if upon, uh, every, uh, spiritually, if upon every time uh, you give the name, they're given name by the parents, uh, their names are reminding them of their Christian heritage or their godly heritage and so uh, their names were changed in an attempt to get them to forget their godly parents, to forget their uh, godly uh, heritage. And uh, though their names were changed, uh, Daniel and his friends never forgot their, their godly heritage. They, and, and it's a tremendous privilege to have a godly heritage. It's a tremendous privilege to be raised in the things of the Lord. So many do not in this world. And I look at it, it's so many people, and the younger the worse it is. But you see them being raised not only not in the things of the Lord, not being raised at all. No significant input in their life. Nobody putting an arm around their shoulder and saying, uh, son or daughter, take a look at this. Look at, uh, this is how to view that fork in the road now for the rest of your life and, to, and consider this and to be told uh, what is right and what is the wrong decision and a broad variety of, of decisions that we have to make in life. And not only to be told what are the right and the wrong decisions, but to have explained to us why it is right and why it is wrong. And, and you just think about, and some of you don't have to really think about it or imagine it, think about hitting the age of 18 or 21, and that's never been built into your life. You don't even know how to talk to people. You don't even know how to talk to uh, anybody that's older than you or anybody that's younger than you, anybody that's in a different kind of class or anything like that, just totally unprepared for life. And, and, and just set to be a casualty. And anybody that's been raised in the things of the Lord and has, has a foundation of de definitions related to right and wrong and, and why right is right in the eyes of God and why wrong is wrong in the, in the eyes of God is light years ahead of any human being or any young person that doesn't have their, that built into their life. And I think it, for us as parents, this is why it's so important to raise our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord because we have no idea, uh, especially uh, today, uh, the world is changing so quickly. The world is so fragile. It is so volatile that we have no idea where life is going to take our children in the course of their three score and ten if the Lord tarries and so it's important to lay that foundation in their life and if your child is wasting their godly heritage at the moment at least you have the peace of knowing God I gave that uh, as an act of worship to you in their life I know that it is in there and, uh, and then to trust that the whole, and that with the knowledge of knowing that the Holy Spirit is working every day to bring them back uh, to their heritage. And he can get in where we can never get uh, in. I think it is interesting to notice that neither Daniel uh, nor his three friends protested uh, the new names. You might have expected, I'm not going to accept a pagan name like that in, in some kind of a protest, but they, they didn't do it. And that's interesting to me. I don't know that I'll be able to shed any light on it, but it does fascinate me. But a, a couple of thoughts that, you know, we might mull over related to it. Maybe it communicates a couple important things to us. First of all, that, that Daniel didn't bring an expectation to Babylon, uh, that it would be like uh, Israel. And in, and in the same way, when as Christians, we are in these various worldly environments that we find ourselves in, in our life and in our, our ministries, we cannot expect them to be Christian or to act uh, Christian. And, and, uh, and likewise, as Christians, we should never ever expect a non-Christian to think like a Christian, to act like a Christian, to talk like a Christian, uh, or, or uh, be, anyway, be like a Christian, because it's an impossibility. It requires a spiritual birth. 
It's, it's a weird thing. You know, sometimes you let people, when you let people know that you're a Christian, I mean, you know the reaction that you'll get uh, in, in, increasingly. Imagine telling people you're a pastor uh, uh, today. There used to be a lot of respect for it. There, I, there is no respect for it. That, or I'm just talking to the wrong pagans. Uh, but there's no, people will, they don't know what to say to you. So they'll say, uh, that must be very rewarding. <laughs> and with the idea uh, of, um, in fact, I was on a, a, a bicycle ride and uh, a few of us from the church and, and uh, we were going up this thing called Ink Grade and a woman came up next to me. Uh, yes, she was going as fast as I was. Uh, everyone, nuns passed me on a bicycle in their, their full habit. Um, so, uh, so we were chit-chatting uh, on the way up, just trying to get through this climb. And, uh, and, then, and then she said that very same thing. You know, I, was, I, I never tell people, the, the moment I see them, I'm a pastor. Um, so I like to begin to engage a little bit and so chit-chatting and what do you do and what's up and all that and, and uh, so she told me and then asked what I, I did and I said I'm a pastor and then she said which I hear it all the time that must be very rewarding with the idea that a, a pastor um, you know counsels people and you're kind of a secular uh, counselor and that you feed people and you're there with people um, and uh, but with uh, but they compartmentalize it in that kind of a way, uh, and if I and so I I will typically listen to someone say that and say, it is very rewarding. Um, it, I say it at least in my mind, uh, but uh, not in the way that you think. I tell people there's a heaven and there's a hell, and I tell people they need to be saved from their sin. And I tell people that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by me. And if they knew I was that kind of a Christian and that kind of a pastor, uh, they wouldn't have anything complimentary uh, to say to me at all. But, but, but you can't, we can't bring that expectation. I, and the, one of the reasons I bring it up is usually I, I'll talk to people for quite a while, and I'm like, I'm like you. I'm looking for an opportunity to ask, do you have any spiritual background? Ever go to church? Ever uh, hear about Jesus or anything like that to, and, and all? And, and usually I, I'll be talking with someone, and before we even get there, they've said somewhere between 5 and 20 curse words. And then they say, well, by the way, what do you do? And they say, I'm a pastor. <laughs> you know, they want to wash out their own mouth with soap. And, uh, but uh, but they, uh, with the idea that, that, you know, that's the sin that will keep you from hell. And I, and I understand what it is that, that, that's going on there. But I don't bring that expectation to, that, uh, to them on that. Now, if my wife and my children are in another room or something, I'm going to say it, but I... Um, Karen and I are never in the same room anymore, and the kids are all grown, so I'm just kidding. Uh, so, but but that, that expectation that we can bring to people that they're going to be uh, exactly the whole world is going to be like the kingdom of God, and it, and it isn't possible. I think it's also important to notice that Daniel used real wisdom and discernment in choosing what issues he would make an issue of. And... Uh, uh, and, and what issues he would just simply flow with. And he's going to make an issue of something here in a moment, but he's not going to make an issue of the name change with Nebuchadnezzar or with his, his uh, eunuch over the education of these, these wise men. And, uh, and if as Christians, I think, if we whine and we complain about every way in which the world is unfair or treats us unjustly, and all we ever do is whine and complain, then it will become what we're known for. We will become known as the prima donnas of whatever environment that we're in and, and who would ever want to be around us for five minutes if, if we're trying to make uh, the, the world like the kingdom of God by some other means than, than spiritual birth. There's an old saying that I like, and uh, it, it goes like this in this regard. It says, when everything is a priority, nothing is a priority. And that's true. 
There's so much that we can complain about. There's so much that is so far from God within our culture that we could complain about everything and then just become known as complainers, as complainers rather than, uh, than picking and choosing what it is that we make an issue of and so that people realize that's the kind of thing that is supremely and foundationally important to a Christian and not all of these these other things which are mostly uh, outward things Jesus uh, plainly taught us uh, Matthew chapter 10 verse 16 behold I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves well here we are <laughs> it's not like a shakaroo that this is going to happen he said therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves Jesus prayed to the Father on the night before his crucifixion, John chapter 17, verse 18, he, and he said to the Father, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And did Jesus come into the world to nitpick at every single issue in which it was a violation of the law of Moses? He, he would have had his hands full and he would have never preached the gospel to people because there's so much to to pick at and it's so easy for us as Christians to begin to uh, major in the minors rather than uh, majoring in in the majors when you look at Jesus's life in this regard and throughout his whole life and throughout his whole uh, public ministry and we certainly see it on full display on the morning of his his crucifixion Jesus was very very wise about what he protested and what he did not uh, protest and he and he was focused he focused completely upon the real reason for his crucifixion and not all the peripheral wrongs that were done to him that morning you remember as he was being uh, 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 judged and interrogated by the Jewish religious leaders in the first trial before he ever went to Pilate and they were bringing all of these accusations against him all of them were false and Jesus sits there or stands there and he doesn't respond to a single one of them. Doesn't open his mouth, doesn't defend himself, is not going to make that an issue. And then somebody asks Jesus, asks him concerning the fact that whether he was the Messiah and the Son of God. And it was as if Jesus thought in his mind at that moment, now that is an issue and that is a question worth answering and he proceeded to answer it so that they would know that when he was hanging on that cross in just a few hours and then buried and rose again on the third day it would be over the issue of whether he was the savior of the world and whether he was the son of god and not all of these other things that he could have just muddied the water with and, and, and nobody would have understood exactly what is important to this man. What are his claims? What are the most important of, of his, his claims? Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But ultimately, and, it, and, it, it, and it's going, it happens to all of us, ultimately something does come up that Daniel couldn't uh, graciously uh, ignore at all. But this was not the issue. Notice in verse 8, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine uh, which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the king, chief of the eunuchs, that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. This is, this is coming from the top, Daniel. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young man uh, who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. 
And so Daniel, uh, then that conversation was ended. Daniel then said to the steward, uh, whom the chief of the eunuchs, who he had just been talking to, he said now to the steward of that chief of the eunuchs that had been set over uh, uh, Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, he said, please, let, test your servants for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink and then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. And so he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of the ten days, their features were, uh, appeared uh, better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. And thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine uh, that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now, we're spoke, uh, told about here in verse 8, uh, ex exposed now uh, to hear Daniel digs in and, and he responds to this demand of Babylon and, and he purposes in his heart that, that he will not defile himself uh, in this way. And so uh, very early on here, Daniel, uh, he encountered this Babylonian something now that he could not, in good conscience, he couldn't go along with it. If it was to go along with it, it would be a violation, a compromise of the Word of God. It would be a compromise of his conscience before God. It would affect his relationship uh, with God. And, and this Babylonian something that caused Daniel to say, no, I, 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 I stop here, it had to do with the food and wine that was being uh, served to these uh, young men who were being groomed for uh, uh, leadership within the Babylon Empire, they were, it was the same food that was being fed to the king, the same wine that was being served uh, to, to the king. And, and somehow Daniel felt that to partake of that uh, would have defiled him. There's really no shortage of, of reasons why Daniel uh, might have felt that he couldn't partake of the food and the wine without compromising. Uh, for sure, the meals that were being served were a violation of the law of Moses. Certainly, pork was being uh, served, uh, fish that did not meet the kosher requirements of, of the law of Moses. And uh, certainly, the meat that would be served in a, in a Gentile environment like that would never have been bled, uh, as, as was required in, in the law of Moses. But I think the, the simplest and the most probable explanation uh, for why Daniel balked here, uh, because you notice he balked not just related to the food, but he balked also concerning the wine, which was completely lawful under the law of Moses. And I think that his problem here is that uh, everything, both the wine and the meat, in that Babylonian environment, it was dedicated to idols. Uh, before it was ever presented and, and placed before people to eat, and certainly before it was ever put uh, before uh, the king. And uh, Babylon was, the, the, the worship in Babylon, worship was dedicated to many, many, many gods. It was idolatry central at that time in, in the ancient world. And so Daniel felt that to partake of this food and this wine uh, would be to honor the false gods of Babylon. And in his conscience, to and, and biblically, really, to dishonor uh, the, the God of Israel and, and to disobey his commandments. For instance, in Ezekiel chapter, uh, Exodus, rather, uh, chapter 34, verse 15, uh, the law of Moses says, Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you and you eat of his sacrifice. So Daniel knows that this is a violation of, of the law of, of Moses, and I, I suspect that that's what he, he ran into. And, and so while he, he didn't protest previously the, the education, he didn't protest the, the name change that, that went on here, he purposed in his heart he is not going to defile himself with, with the king's uh, delicacies. And, and the word purpose there in, in verse 8, it means uh, to put. 
It means to set into place. It means to plant. It means to fix into place. And it, it's something uh, internal. It, it, it is, uh, Daniel looks at this, and finally an issue comes before him, and he says, I am immovable on this issue. I purpose in my heart where I, where I could do these other things, but this I, I cannot do. And of course, each of us are going to have these kind of compromises and, and called a compromise that are going to come into our lives. And for that reason, each of us have to have lines in our lives as Christians, lines that are determined within our hearts, they're purposed within our hearts, that we will never cross that line, no matter what the pressure is placed upon us in order to, uh, to uh, cross cross over that line. Those are lines that are defined by Scripture, lines that are defined individually for us by the person of the Holy Spirit for what He's called us to do and, and to be, even in the realm of liberties, uh, it, it, it can occur. And so it's important that we don't do what the temptation would always be to do in a situation like this, and that is just to go along, to get along, and if we go along uh, to get along, then, uh, then ultimately we'll end up looking exactly like everything else in the world. And our Christian witness will be spoiled. And our Christian witness is the most important uh, thing in our life after our relationship uh, with, with the Lord. And, I, and Daniel teaches us, and I think we certainly know it from experience, that no Christian will ever make it if we don't learn to make a stand for God against the pressure and the temptation of sin. Paul talks about in spiritual warfare, having done all to stand, stand somewhere in our Christian lives in order to uh, navigate in a, in a spiritual way in order to stand in the culture that you and I are called to stand uh, in for God, it requires making that stand. There has to be a point where we draw the line and say, I do not cross that line. I don't care how many people do. I don't care how many Christians do. Here is where I make my stand. I purpose in my heart that I will not cross that line for the rest of my life by, by the grace uh, of, of God. And what Daniel uh, does here is really just an indication of the lordship of God within his life. A lot of people, uh, uh, a lot of people become Christians and they come to know, and then there's this whole argument about whether you can become a Christian where Jesus is your Savior but he's not yet your Lord. And I think people can become Christians and they know what it is for him to be their savior, but they don't have the foggiest idea on what this Lord uh, side of things is. And they're willing to repent of their sin and turn to God. But so often people get saved and then this crisis occurs. Uh, and, the, and the sooner it happens, the better, where a person is forced to uh, what I call settle the issue of uh, Jesus' lordship in my life. And where we are forced to say, here is where I, I, I have lines in my life, they're biblically defined, and I will not cross those lines. And Daniel did it uh, early in life, and I don't think we can ever uh, do it too early. The earlier, uh, the better. And, and I think it's important that these lines be determined in our hearts long before the temptation to compromise occurs. Uh, in uh, the book of Genesis, we'll get to it someday on Sunday morning, but you have the whole account concerning Joseph and Potiphar's wife. She comes in, he's uh, 18, 19 years old. Uh, uh, they tell us this is the, the, the peak uh, years of desire in terms of, of human sexuality among, uh, among men. And she's got to be a knockout because these officials in the Babylonian, in the Egyptian empire, uh, they, they married knockouts. Okay, so, uh, so here she comes, she catches him alone, she grabs uh, and, and makes her available to him and says, come lie with me. And if, if Joseph 
had not purposed in his heart prior to that temptation, what he would do in the event of such a temptation, he's doomed. If, 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 if Joseph is in that environment with that woman, uh, with who he is and what he is from Adam and Eve, and he takes that moment in time to determine uh, what am I going to do in this environment, uh, he's in trouble. But he had already determined it. He had already purposed in his heart. And what did he do? He ran and left even his uh, robe in her hands. He wanted to get, uh, get, get out of there. And so it's so important to determine these things ahead of time. They have to be settled issues ahead of time. And in, in life in general, but also when we are uh, coming into maybe a, beginning a new school year or we're beginning a new job or we, be, we can think about new environments that we're going to be introduced into as, as we're living our Christian life and, and begin to anticipate uh, where the pressure will come from in that new environment to compromise uh, my, my faith in Christ and my, my relationship with God and then to anticipate those things ahead of time and then to ahead of time that when this happens and we know that it will that when this happens I have purposed in my heart that uh, by the grace of God I'm not going to bow to the pressure that's inevitably going to come my way on this and then to stand for God no matter whatever it is whether it's sexual, sexual immorality or drugs or whether it's uh, uh, cheating or whether it's uh, drinking and it's not just uh, heading into educational centers the same thing is true again as I say is we're entering into a new job or even an existing job or even uh, joining the uh, an extended family for Thanksgiving dinner I mean if you have a big family and you're going to Thanksgiving dinner and you're in a small minority or the only Christian that's in that family I mean you got a purpose in your heart <laughs> before you ever walk into that room you know aunt so-and-so is gonna try and tweak you and you know that uncle so-and-so is gonna tell the worst jokes in the world and uh, inappropriate and then this is gonna happen and this is going to happen and that's going to happen and then ahead of time to say Lord I want to sort this out with you for how am I gonna conduct myself in this environment in a way that that glorifies you but uh, it isn't one in which I expect them to be some, a Christian when when clearly uh, they're not and so and I think that also that in the to notice in this new environment that Daniel found himself in that uh, he was uncompromising in this area and in every area but uncompromising from the very start and so he he made a stand against doing something that would have required a compromise concerning his faith and his relationship with the Lord and he did it uh, as soon as it surfaced so for instance here we are we're in a new work environment that we that we find ourselves in and we're asked to do something that violates uh, scripture and we're going to do one of two things at that that moment in in time we're going to either compromise and do what they're demanding of us or we're going to uh, tactfully talk to our supervisor and explain to them that I can't do that and here's why I can't do that and then in the hopes though that everything else that we bring to that company and everything else that we bring to that employer will mean something to them and to explain to them perhaps in a way best way that we can that uh, all, the fact that we are hardworking for them the fact that we are punctual uh, the fact that we are trustworthy the fact that we don't steal from them the fact that we will do what it is that they have have told us to do that all of those things that you value in me uh, are in me because of this and then hopefully for them to see uh, the larger value 
beyond anything that they could try and uh, gain from bringing you into a place uh, of compromise and, and maybe lose you as, as an employee. I think it's always a self-deception to think, I'll compromise now in this new environment just to get established. And then once I have a position of, of significance and influence and all, then I'll make a stand for the Lord. just doesn't happen. And it's always harder to do later uh, than, than earlier. And uh, because if we do it after a long season of compromise, who's going to respect it or take any of it seriously? I think that additionally, the world being what it is today, that our godly convictions and our relationship with God, when they, that they will be tested in any new environment that we find ourselves in. And I would say that is directed by the Holy Spirit uh, and, and by the circumstances. I am not advocating that in every new environment that we come in, that we let everybody know inside of 30 seconds that we are uh, Christians and that we share the gospel. Uh, with them in, in that environment. There's, a, in a, there's an entire element of all of this that is in the hands of the Holy Spirit coming into an environment, understanding what is going on here, what are the dynamics here, what are the personalities that are involved, what are their histories here a little bit, and, and also you never want to uh, force this to where it's like awkward and people go, all right, you got that out of the way as a Christian. Now can we, you know, have a, a, a normal relationship? And, and I think all of us, I certainly do know where, especially early on as a Christian, feeling that need to kind of settle this thing and let them know that I'm a Christian within 15 seconds of, uh, of meeting them. And, uh, but but to, make, to make that stand and to let people know earlier rather than later as the Holy Spirit allows it to unfold the fact that, that we are, uh, the, that we are uh, Christians. And, uh, and not only because it will often change people's expectations of us and what they will ask of us, and, uh, but, uh, and, and to instantly realize that there are places that we will not go in terms of compromise, and, but also because in letting people know that we're Christians, it really forces us to uh, raise our game in that environment and to realize, all right, now I'm in the mission field here now and everybody's watching me to want to see the kingdom of God and, and coming to conclusions about God on the basis of what they see in me. So the, the old uh, Sunday school uh, song concerning Daniel uh, includes this in, in its lines. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, uh, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. And there's, there's that element of it. I want you to notice also in verse, uh, the latter part of verse 8 that uh, Daniel's approach of uh, Aspenaz and, and his request of him. So, it, it, and, and to learn from that, that it's not enough to make a stand in these kind of in, uh, circumstances, but it's also important to conduct ourselves properly when we are forced to make these kind of stands uh, in, in, in life. And, and how to do that and, and to make that stand individually with other people. You notice that when Daniel approached uh, Ashpenaz that he didn't demand anything of him uh, there in, in verse 8. He, he didn't tell him, listen, this is my way or, or, or the highway. You notice there that he came to him and he requested. Now that's a respect word. Uh, that, that's a word, that, that's a tone, that's an approach that people, they notice that right away. And so he, he doesn't demand that he do anything and uh, uh, he comes to him and he requests it. And in, in all of this, as you see Daniel conducting himself in all of this, he, he, he demonstrates tremendous humility, he demonstrates tremendous tact in dealing uh, with this, uh, this man and, and he, he demonstrates tremendous respect. We'll talk more about that in, in verse 12 next week. Just kidding. Um, the hesitation 
here in verses 9 and 10 of, of Ashpenaz, uh, Daniel was, had favor in his eyes. He thought very, very highly of Daniel. And his concern, he communicates it in, in verse 10, that this command was not uh, Ashpenaz's command. This had been commanded by Nebuchadnezzar. And as we're going to find out about Nebuchadnezzar, is he was kind of testy about people disobeying what he wanted them to do. He's in the habit of like, um, threatening to chop people up in small pieces and turn their homes into dunghills. Uh, this, is, this is how he, and everybody who worked with him knew. You, you kind of have to walk on eggshells around a guy like that. So nobody had any real job security in, in, in this, in the sense of no job security if you were going to defy what it is that he, he called you to do. And so he, he tells Daniel, listen, I like you. You're a great guy. But if I do what you're telling me to do, I mean, I, it could result in my execution. So completely understandable, uh, of course. And, and, and we will never, ever know what position our decision might put another person in uh, unless we talk to him or her. And Daniel didn't know that these would be the repercussions that would come upon this man by virtue of his request. Now he knew. And, uh, and Daniel realized this was a closed door and he's not going to get another chance, uh, another audience with this man over the same issue. So there in verses 11 through 16, he approaches the steward that had been placed over him by uh, Ashpenaz. And he made the same request of the steward there in verses 12 and thir uh, 13 uh, with the offer of a 10-day trial. And again, you notice that Daniel's Humility, his tact, his winsomeness is on full display here. And uh, clearly he took his uh, conversation with Ashpenaz to heart. He recognized that his request that he would bring to any Babylonian official was going to uh, put them in a very, very difficult place. And so he took it upon himself to give it some thought and to come up with a potential solution and then to present that solution. And of course, any boss, any supervisor in any environment it, it will notice that and uh, it, they that can tell you what a wonderful thing it is when someone doesn't merely bring problems to them, but then brings a potential solution to, to that problem as well. And of course, uh, when somebody gets known as that kind of an employee, that's the kind of an employee that will usually stick around for a while. And certainly through the first or uh, second uh, series of layoffs that come in any kind of an uh, economic downturn. The, the, there's a lot of wisdom in Daniel's proposal for this 10-day this test of a, of a different kind of, of diet. Uh, the United States is probably the diet capital of the world, among other things, aren't they? So most of us have endeavored to take off a lot of weight or take off some amount of weight, and we realize that if we uh, jump in on any diet, usually if, if this diet is going to work, we will begin to see the results of it within 10 days, won't we? Uh, oh, this is working. What, what a difference uh, that, uh, that, it, that it's making. And, uh, and so there's that time to, to see, uh, experience the effects of, of that diet. But then additionally, as, David, as Daniel thinks about the steward, he also realizes that uh, 10 days is enough time to go into a diet and, uh, and if it begins to become a problem for the steward, there's still plenty of time to put that weight back on by going back to the other food. Isn't it something where, you know, you want to maybe drop some weight or something like that, and then 10 days you work so hard, and then, and then you step on the scale and the weight is down uh, to, to such, and, uh, such and such, and then uh, we all of us realize that... Uh, we can undo uh, everything about that 10 days of that diet uh, by going to Mr. T's Delicate Donuts <laughs> and eating two dozen uh, donuts right there on the spot, those jelly-filled donuts and those, those French 
kind of French glazed, yeah, you know, they just, just pop them right in, one right after the other, you know, and uh, take a little milk so you don't have like a seizure uh, of, of some kind. On it. But, there, but there's that realization that, that it's enough time to see if it's working, it's enough time to backpedal if it becomes a, 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 a problem. And so uh, this is the proposal that he made, win-win for everybody. I mean, he's really, really a smart kid. And again, we see his tact, we see his humility, we see his respect for authority displayed in the fact that he began his request with the Lord uh, there in, in uh, verse 12 with the word, please. And, uh, and then he promised that he would leave it with the steward to determine uh, the results of, of the 10-day trial there at the end of verse 13. And as Christians, we are, of course, the Bible teaches that we are in the world, but we're not to be of the world. Uh, but when we're in pagan or in secular environments, it's important to realize that we're not going to change the religion of people. We're not going to typically change the uh, worldview of those environments or even individuals with a single conversation. So we have to conduct ourselves in a way that protects the relationship, that builds on the relationship. And always treating people with humility, treating them with respect as a Christian is the very best way to do it. It is, it is the mark of a person who realizes that is it concerned for the long-term health of, of, of the relationship and uh, has a, a, a view of the, the long-term of the situation. And these kind of things take time. They take a lot of time to influence someone for uh, God and to change things and change people's minds. But we're always going to need a healthy relationship in order to influence people or influence an institution, uh, much less a nation. And uh, I, I do need to take care uh, to make a stand concerning my personal convictions uh, from the Scriptures uh, that that does need to be addressed, it does need to be communicated, and, 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 and then to be resolved concerning that. But it's also important that we conduct ourselves in a way that we don't burn the relationship to the ground immediately. And uh, by way of arrogance, by way of pride, or speaking to people condescendingly, or just simply being obnoxious as a Christian. And it's really easy for us as Christians to come across as obnoxious and holier than thou and, and to speak condescendingly to people in, in, in these kind of areas. One of my favorite proverbs, not because I've, I've even remotely mastered it, but because I need to constantly be reminded of it, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 28, the heart of the righteous studies how to answer. And I think we, most of us have, at least out of a sense of self-preservation, we will give, if we're going to give any time to this at all, we will give significant time to what to answer in a situation. But typically, and what Daniel teaches us is important, is it's just as important to study how to give the answer that, that we're, we're going to need uh, to, to give. And... Uh, and, and more often than not, coupling that, that, that how, uh, what to answer with how to answer makes all the difference in the fruitfulness of, of, of the conversation and, and, and of the interaction. To, to not only think to ourselves, you know, what would Jesus do here, but also how would he do what he would do. And I think especially as Christians, in our, now in our, in our culture as post-Christian, I think that, and I certainly take the challenge to myself, there is a need, we have to become better at explaining uh, than we ever have before, previously, in explaining our views and our perspectives uh, to people. Uh, to not only make the stand, but to explain to people why we have to make the stand uh, that we make based upon Scripture. And the great, I think the great challenge for the person who knows that they are right in life and knows that they are right on the highest authority, that is Scripture. We're talking about a Christian uh, here. And uh, is how to be right 
in a conversation with a husband and a wife, with a child, with parents, with family members, workplace, school, wherever it might be. And, and the challenge is how to be right and remain humble. And, and how to be right and communicate the truth, but still treat other people with respect in, in doing so. And, and, and in that great chapter in the Bible on the subject of love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're told that love does not behave rudely. And that's, that means love is always well-mannered. And because love is always well-mannered, of course, it's a characteristic of Jesus' life. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is a description of, of his life. Paul goes and speaks in the New Testament in, in the book of Ephesians to us, clearly on, on the subject that's being discussed here with Daniel. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, he said, speaking the truth in love. Now, some people are very good at speaking the truth, but not very good at love. And then there's other people who are very good at love, but they'll never speak the truth. And, and the, the combination is, is necessary. Uh, Warren Wearsby has the great quote on this. He said, truth without love is brutality, and love without truth is hypocrisy. And it's true. And the fascinating thing is, is if we bring this principle back to the highest place we can bring it, and that is back to uh, the life of Jesus himself, we see it continually in him. I mean, even when he found it necessary to confront the, the Jewish religious leaders uh, of his day, and he, con he could confront them with incredible uh, clarity with incredible strength and, and without any compromise at all. I mean, he could uh, even, even confront them in righteous anger. And yet, always when he did so, there, there was never the slightest hint of pride or arrogance. You read the gospel, see if you can find it. And, and that's what Daniel does here. And that's what it means to be like Christ. Not just to make the stand, that must be made, but it must be made in the right way. And pride and arrogance never advances anything uh, for God. You notice that Daniel didn't approach the, the steward and, and say to him, listen, I'm a servant of the true and the living God. I'm a king's kid and you're a nation of idolaters and you're a pagan idol worship yourself. And, and by the way, I think you're all screwy for worshiping uh, all the nutty gods that you uh, worship. Uh, if that's our first conversation with, uh, with people of other religions and cultures, we're, we're not going to be very effective in reaching them at all. And in fact, we'll not only destroy our relationship with them, but we will build walls very high and very thick between them and Christianity at all. And so the tact that we see in Daniel, represented in, at such a young age in, in his life, is, is so uh, important. Otherwise, if we're arrogant and proud, people will just look at us and conclude, if, if that's the kind of proud, arrogant person that Christianity produces, I don't want anything to do with it. And who could argue with them? And so the steward, he consented there in verse 14. And at that point, this all moves out of Dave, uh, Daniel's hands and uh, into God's hands. We'll never know what God will do in any situation within our life where we're being pressured to compromise our faith or our conscience until we make a stand, until we purpose in our heart, and then we do that, and now the adventure begins. What is God now going to do with this situation where I have given Him my obedience to work with uh, in the situation. Only one way to find out, and that's the purpose in our heart, make the stand. Otherwise, if we compromise, we will never know what God might have done in that situation. That can really lead to a life of regret. The, the end of the test is there in verses 15 and 16. They were better and fatter than all the rest of them. And they liked their servants to be full-faced and all because it, it would do, wouldn't do a poor reflection on the king if people showed up and they were, you know, gaunt and uh, uh, that kind of thing. And so God honored their Daniel's stand, the stand of his, his friends. And, and the steward then gave him the, the diet that they requested. And then in verse 17, you notice, and as for these four young men, 
God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And so Daniel makes that stand. They all make that stand. And then what does God do? God blessed them and gifted them as, as a result of it. Why would he bless and gift a compromiser? Why would he invest in that way? They made the stand, and then in came this blessing that God brought of knowledge, skill in all literature, wisdom, and uh, uh, which they, uh, upon receiving, they realized there is now a supernatural dynamic in our capacity to learn and in our capacity to perform in, in the positions that we're being uh, groomed for. Uh, Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 21, in this regard, He said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and then here it is, and manifest myself to him. And when we make a stand and we obey the Lord, it always results in some manifestation of God, some revelation of God, some deepening of our relationship with God, some blessing that God brings into our lives as a result of, of making that stand. There's the additional gifting that's recorded there concerning Daniel, understanding and all dreams and visions. He would uh, receive uh, dreams and visions himself that he would uh, have the interpretation for. Uh, others, namely Nebuchadnezzar, would have these dreams and visions that, that uh, God would give uh, Daniel that, that gift for interpreting them. And so we see the blessing, and God wants us to see it, the blessing that comes with making a stand uh, for him in these situations. Whatever happens on the physical realm, something always wonderful happens in, in the spiritual realm. And then at the end of these days, verse 18, when the king had said that they should be brought in, uh, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and then the king interviewed them, and among them uh, all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king. They were given the prime posts. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better uh, than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all of his realm. Not just among the young people, the young men that were being trained. These four excelled all of his existing uh, counselors and, and uh, astrologers and, and magicians. And thus Daniel continued until the reign, uh, uh, until the first year of King Cyrus, some 67 years uh, later. So he calls here, uh, the king calls for this full class of, of students, uh, the four with, with Daniel, the four of them come before the king. Imagine, uh, imagine the nerves you might have uh, bef before that. I mean, you talk about job interviews where a lot is hanging in the balance. You have been prepare, preparing for this test for three years. And if you fail this test, you are out of Nebuchadnezzar's court. I mean, just incredible, incredible uh, pressure. And he interviews them, and, uh, and they excel by virtue of that uh, the, that, uh, is, is, as we see in verse 17, those two words, uh, God gave, and they were given, given that uh, position within, within the kingdom. And so began Daniel's ministry in, in, in uh, uh, Babylon. And it is interesting that God plants Daniel in, uh, puts him in this place, this is an extraordinary young man, puts him in this place of, of high position within the Babylonian Empire to become a servant of this pagan king. And yet that was God's plan for, uh, for Daniel. And, uh, and as the old saying goes, if we'll just bloom where we're planted and work hard where it is that God has planted us, then uh, we can trust God to make much of it, even though we can wonder, you know, why in the world am I here in this pagan, dark environment? Uh, this doesn't make any sense to me at all. But there's no better place to spend our lives than the place that God has chosen 
for us to spend our lives, where he has planted us as Christians, whether we understand that uh, or, or uh, not. And, the, and, and, and so, so it was with, with Daniel in, in all of this. Among other things, chapter 1 teaches us that a child of God can live a life of faithfulness to God in the face of the greatest pressure that the world can bring to bear against us. And that is a needed, needed encouragement within our lives. But it teaches us that it will require purpose of heart. It will require a Holy Spirit determination to live for God no matter what the pressure or the compromise. And so I see my clock. I know I'm three minutes over. You're not the only one that's aware of it. But to just ask ourselves this, this evening, when is the last time you or I purposed in our heart concerning anything in the light of the tremendous pressure to compromise within this culture? Maybe you don't need to because there is no compromise within your life. But I think that this culture demands what we see in Daniel here on a regular basis, a continual determination not to cross these lines that the culture is pressuring uh, us uh, to cross. And it's so easy. And it is the, the interesting thing about it is sometimes the longer we walk with the Lord, uh, the, the, the greater the, the inclination to just go with the flow of everything that, that is, is going on. And just obeying God's commandments when they're easy to obey and then disregarding them when it costs me something to obey them or when it requires purpose of heart in order to obey them. And here you have these four uh, men, they were young, they were far away from home and, and far away from the support of godly family. They were smart, they were good looking, uh, they were in the midst of extreme indoctrination, they were, ha had had a taste of the good life, and they had been renamed and yet purpose of heart overcame all of it. And it's important to ask ourselves, is, are we as determined as Daniel not to defile ourselves in an astonishingly uh, pagan culture? And to just before we leave tonight, head out to our cars and to go get the kiddos, to just ask ourselves concerning that in the Scripture. It's not just to know a bunch of new facts about Daniel or be reminded of old facts that we knew uh, about Daniel, but to really have it search us to whether we need to determine in our heart to make a stand in some area in our life and where we have failed to make a stand or we're being tempted to, to compromise. And if we do, then God's will will unfold for our lives. And if we don't, then we will never know what God might have done. God has a great plan for each of our lives, but this is how it unfolds. And it is the only way that we can discover that will. Again, ultimately, Daniel is going to live into his 90s. And interestingly, when the opportunity comes for him to return back to Jerusalem and, and back to uh, Judah at the end of the Babylonian Empire, uh, he didn't go. And most people look at it and they say, well, it's because he was too old to make the trip now uh, in his late 80s and in his 90s. But I don't think that's the only explanation on the table. I think perhaps God still had more for him to do there now in the Medo-Persian uh, empire. And Daniel had learned as much as he loved Jerusalem, as much as he loved Judah, uh, being in the middle of God's will, uh, and wherever that might be was more important to him. And so he stayed there in Babylon and then into the Medo-Persian Empire. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer.